welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Hello, everyone. So this is the first podcast of 2024. And satisfactorily, it's also episode 124. And we we know that from the last year, the medical field has been constantly evolving and innovative advancements, revolutionizing the way we diagnose, treat, and prevent diseases have just been coming at us left and right. As we move into 2024, there are numerous promising developments that hold the potential to significantly impact healthcare and improve the lives of individuals worldwide. So I sat down with our Physicians Weekly's board member and also a family and sports doctor at Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, Dr. Alex McDonald, and we made a list of the things we think you should be watching out for that may shape the future of healthcare in 2024. One important point is we will be changing the cadence of these podcasts to once every two weeks starting in 2024, but that won't change the excellence of the content and our listenership is growing every week. We hope that we can continue to make quality podcasts to suit your needs. Anyway, enjoy listening. Hi there, everyone. This is Rachel Giles. I'm here with Dr. Alex McDonald. Alex, could you just kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. For those of you who may be new, I'm Alex McDonald. I practice uh, family and sports medicine here in Southern California, and I like talking on podcasts. So you guys keep having me back every time. No, I'm just teasing. I I do a lot of work around health policy, uh, primary care, obviously. Uh, I teach medical students, residents, fellows, and uh, I was really excited to continue to to have the conversation here with you and, and all of our listeners out there. Thanks so much for showing up for this one, because this is going to be a tough one. We're going to take a look into that crystal ball and try and predict some of those breakthroughs might be that will claim 2024 as their year of coming to see the world. So it's it's a lot to ask. And I think that we've made a list that's going to be halfway decent. And I, I pulled up the old list. I, I, I mentioned this before we started recording. We didn't do too badly last year, actually. No, we we did pretty well, actually. I, yeah. I would be go back and listen to that. Those of you who have not. Yeah. Well, we, you guys be the judge of it, but uh, grant, grant scheme. We did it it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Well, I hope this year we're half as successful. So there's there were some guesses here, but I think some of them are pretty obvious as well. And yeah. so I'm going give, to give the mic over to you because I think, Alex, what do you look forward to in 2024? What are some of the trends you think globally? I'm going to kind of hedge my bets here a little bit and talk about a lot of the work in primary prevention, which has been going on. This is work been, which has been going on for years. I think we will continue that work in, in 2024 regarding prevention. If we can prevent illness, that's ultimately the, the panacea for all of us as physicians rather than just treating somebody once they're already sick. So this has been slow, incremental work. It's hard to measure. We likely won't see that benefit for years or even decades down the road. And so I'm going to say primary prevention and the work towards uh, continuing to to prevent illness. You know, there's multiple things like the poly pill and, and things like that, which are coming out. And, and there's there's been some data around those, but I think we'll see a lot more work there. And, and I can claim that I was right no matter what happens. So I'm going to take that one as a first win. Oh, I, I love it. I think it's a great, it's a great first one. And I think we definitely are going to be seeing more of that. It's just the kind of the question indeed is how do we measure this? And how do right. we make sure that we're hitting all of the population, you know, and not just the the hanging fruit, as they say, important. But okay, let's move on to the first one we chose, which is kind of on this theme, because the first one we chose was AI powered diagnostics and patient information. 
And yeah, you think I mean, about AI, that. Yeah. AI is sweeping everywhere. I mean, I think sure. I would say, you know, 2023 was probably the year that AI really kind of exploded and it will likely continue to explode across all sectors of, uh, you, you could imagine, and healthcare is obviously no different. Again, I like using the term not artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence, because yeah. I really don't think that AI is going to replace the human uh, physician patient interaction, but I think it will help us do our jobs better because there's just so much information and so much knowledge that one person can't know it all. And it's going to help us make better decisions, both at the point of care as well as long term prognosis. And it will be interesting to see where we continue this work in 2024. Absolutely. So I agree with you. I think the specifically the diagnostics is something which will definitely sure. help. Um, you know, the human mind can only have only has so much and we definitely have biases intrinsic to the way we look at things. So it's definitely good to have AI support a diagnostic uh, tree along that. Right. And on top of that, I think we put down patient information because one thing that large language models can already do is interpret something complex like uh, the notes from a multidisciplinary team or even the pathology report and turn this into a, a language that most patients would be able to understand. And I think that that's something that's being underutilized, and I hope to see an uptake of that in the coming year for sure. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times that we have open notes here in my system and patients right. get a, a CT scan or MRI report, which is, you know, page long, and they send me and like, what does this mean? And I have to translate it. And if we can have a machine do that, that frees us up for other work as well. Exactly. And these large language models make it easy to query. So if the patient still doesn't understand it after that, you can say, well, what about this? You know, it'll just go into more details and it'll define things. So hopefully yep. it'll be a great supportive tool and it obviously won't replace it. But there's some, you know, retrospective studies. There's some prospective studies that are really using and incorporating artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence as a basic tool. So we've got uh, certain aspects that are definitely uh, interesting, and we're all learning how to use it. But also, you're learning to laugh at the things that go wrong. Right. Just you can't you can't expect it to be perfect. But yeah. the idea is that it's going to save up to thirty percent of the time in the clinic. So that would be great to have that time for other things. Yeah, and and if I may, I think I have a couple folks who may be a little more a little more senior in their career, and they're very anxious and worried about AI and doesn't think it has a role in healthcare. Um, but I would argue that. We have to be at the table. We have to be on the ground floor as physicians, making sure that AI is implemented in a smart way where there's guardrails and there's guidelines so that we can make sure that it really is serving both the patient and the physicians and the healthcare systems. And so I think we have to be very engaged in this conversation as as frontline clinicians. And so you can't just ignore this and pretend like it's not going to affect you because it's going to affect all of us. So if we don't help make the decisions, someone else is going to make the decisions for us, which might, let's just say, what might not be the best outcome. You're either at the table or you're on the menu. That's right. You're either at the table or on the menu. Exactly. So we're going to move to policy, which is another important part of what may impact mm -hmm. how medicine unfolds in 2024. And one of the things we were talking about were, was the Inflation Reduction Act, but also other policy issues that are relevant. You're the policy guy here. Yeah. So obviously, so Inflation Reduction Act will help change some kind of out-of-pocket uh, expenses and copay. So once patients meet their deductible, they're not going to have that sort of 5% cost for some of those medications, which can be exorbitant. And so that that's going to be a big thing, especially Medicare beneficiaries who won't have as much out-of-pocket cost for some of their medications. So I think that's a, a really important piece. And then also a lot of work which started in 2023, but I think is going to continue and really come to fruition in 2024, is a lot of the work 
work around prior authorizations. Um, right. So when a physician orders a medication, often the pharmacy benefit manager or the health insurance company will ask for more information and they have to authorize that medication before the patient can go pick it up. It's become so burdensome and in very cheap generic medications, which are prescribed daily and patients have been on them for, for years or getting prior authorization. Then it's really talking about a poor utilization of a physician's time, spending hours and hours doing these prior authorizations, whereas 90% of the time they're approved anyway. Right. Um, and so there's been a lot of work around that. How can we streamline that process for physicians who have 90 plus percent of their prior authorizations approved? Can they kind of get a pass for three months? so to speak, so they don't have to do it for every single medication, every single refill. So there's a lot of work going around this work, both you know nationally as well as in different states. And I think we will see a lot of that come to fruition. I, I know um, there's a lot of frustration amongst our physicians regarding, regarding having to deal with this work. That's so true. That's so true. So we're going to move now on from a pretty broad, uh, specific to the United States issue to a very global and important issue that will not affect the uh, the average American citizen too much. But it is something of great note, I think, that people probably should stand still for, which is the R21 malaria vaccine. Yeah, um, That's been, uh, it's really been showing to, to be incredibly effective in children in Africa. And there's been thousands of children who have been vaccinated at this point, and it's showing incredible promise for long-term protection against malaria. And um, I, I can't tell you enough how important that is for you know, global situations where there is so yeah. little access to care and how that sort of prevention, primary prevention, can actually really control a lot of misery. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty I, excited I, about this. Massive impact worldwide. And I think also with, you know, changing climate patterns, you know, we're seeing malaria in new and different places that, you know, we used to think, oh, this doesn't affect us here in the United States. But actually, you know, it... it Florida's it, looking pretty malaria-like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. True. So I, I think this affects all of us and can make a huge, uh, huge benefit to, to primary prevention, like I said. Yeah, absolutely. So it's one of those things that sometimes you have to keep an eye on things that may not be directly impacting your practice, but it will impact global practice. And mm -hmm. I'm very excited to see these these developments also because it's not a big moneymaker probably. So it's great to see these kind of global efforts and collaborations roll out across yep. the globe. Agreed. The next one on our list, number four, is Digital Twins, which is a bit of a fantasy world, and we may have to roll this one back next year, but who knows? I, I don't like the term for this, but... I don't but, either. Uh, what would you yeah, prefer? Yeah, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't describe what it actually is, but anyway, you go ahead, please. Well, I mean, what do you think it is? Let's just start there. Well, so my understanding of this is it's sort of looking at sort of theoretical models about what yes. might happen if you have you're at a decision point and you can choose A or choose B, and these these computerized models help us decide what might be the outcome of path A versus path B, and further uh, decision points down each of those paths as well. So I feel like it you can take a very complicated situation and almost like have predictive analytics of all of these different pathways based on which decision you make at which point. That's my understanding, at least. Am I absolutely off absolutely base? no, you're not off base at all. So that's one one aspect to it. So if you have a 55-year-old African American male with the BMI of 30 who is pre-diabetic and might have prostate issues, mm -hmm. you uh, you may need to have that information you can pull out of a clinical trial database of other 55-year-old African-American males with a similar BMI and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so some of that is is 
just using the data digitization that we already have at our fingertips, but just simply don't have access to because we don't have the algorithms there for them. The other thing, the aspect that's very important is the personalization of the digital twin. So that's you put in your genome, you put in your your allergies, uh, you you have all of these information there about your phenotype and genotype. And it does some modeling based on that as to which, which drugs might, might work for you, which drugs, you know, based on, you know, how your enzymes may metabolize certain drugs and so forth. So there's a lot of different elements there that's involved in it. It's, it's a very hand wavy uh, situation still. But the idea of a digital twin is to allow people to indeed help the decision making be more realistic and down to earth and personalized as well. So you want to figure out how to treat the patient in front of you and not just a standard patient. Yeah, but I don't I don't like the term digital twinning. I mean, shouldn't it be like, you know, digital decision support or I don't know, some other I, term. I, I agree. So maybe we need to change it now and, uh, and and work with that, try and set the stage here. But it is being used, unfortunately. Right. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Another exciting global event that will affect perhaps people in the United States is the T-cell vaccine for HIV mm-hmm. AIDS. Yeah. So this is, there's some trials that are happening. They're treating mostly young, healthy individuals with HIV AIDS, and it's a cytomegalous virus vector vaccine, and it affects T cells and really whips them up into a frenzy. So, and the proof of concept trial has really been impressive. We're really looking forward to see how they scale this up and distribute it, but it's available at limited situations and sites at this point. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more real-world evidence coming out of that. And perhaps disappointing real-world evidence often is, since trials are often selective for who they're treating. But we've had people dosed already, and it's being conducted by the uh, HIV Vaccines Trials Network at 10 sites in the United States right now. So I'm really interested. It's funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So the idea is to make this really roll it out globally. The infrastructure is fantastic for this. So I, again, I love to see these global projects come to fruition. Yeah. Now this this will be really fascinating. I'm I, as again talk about primary prevention. See, I, I'm right already. We haven't even you started are. the year yet, and I'm probably pre- right on this primary prevention work. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Our next point, however, is after the fact, not primary prevention. Right. You're sick. You're in the hospital. What can we do to improve virtual hospitals and home care hospitals hospitalization? Yeah. I mean, so this is a work that I'm actually very involved with, with my organization here, Kaiser Permanente. We're we doing a lot of hospital at home. We know patients do better at home, recover better at home. They're more comfortable at home. And so if they're clinically stable, we can get them IV medications at home. Uh, we can treat them virtually. We can have either, you know, a virtual visit. You can have some remote uh, monitoring and talk about wearable technology. Talk about patient-centered. Rather than taking the patient and put them into the hospital where all the doctors are, we can have the doctors and the medicine come to the patient. And I just Really? love this sort of, you know, paradigm shift from where we were, you know, 150 years ago uh, before hospitals. We're now kind of shifting back because we realize that the centralization of hospitals is maybe not always the best thing, quite frankly, when it comes to, you know, infectious disease spread and, you know, patients not doing as well. So I think this will be really interesting work and I hope this continues. I love getting people out of the hospital and home as quickly as possible, but we want to do it safely and, and effectively. Absolutely. It's so important. There's a lot of different cultures where home care is more standard and also home dialysis is, is something that's really important too. So it improves people's quality of life, but also extends their life. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. 
All right. Another next number six is also a little bit of the uh, hand wavy type, um, but it's there's some interesting stuff going on, and it's not quite ready for prime time yet. But tissue printing, three D tissue printing, and also I specifically mentioned the kidney project, which is a UCSF project. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but they're not going to put bio artificial kidneys into humans until 2030. Is the current plan, but there are significant proof of concept trials planned for next year. And I think we're going to be seeing some really interesting data come out on this. So right now they're, they're working with goats and goats because they have similar size kidneys and similar blood pressure requirements and, and they're very active, much more active than humans. So typically if it can be in a very active goat and survive, then it's thought to be humans will be a piece of cake, will be an easy animal model at that point. <laughs> Well, we know goats eat anything anyway, right? So maybe yeah, you know. that's true. I mean, I think this is this is fascinating. There's such a need for organ transplants, and we know that list is so long. And if we can, you know, grow our own artificial organs, and I feel like this is, I feel like this is something super sci-fi and futuristic. But it's, it it's becoming reality, which is pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Uh, ever since you know, I'm, I'm in nephrology, so the the whole dialysis concept is still crazy that we've had it for so long, and it saves some people's. But we haven't really improved it too much <laughs> for well, a long like, time. I feel like also just the the physiologic wear and tear that dialysis takes on someone's body. Yeah. I mean, when you see patients who've on dialysis for five or ten years, I mean, they're just worn out on multiple yeah. levels. And if we can prevent that also, sure, we can filter the blood, but it doesn't impact a lot of those other sort of more nuanced approaches to quality of life and things like that, which where we, we can just replace the kidney, grow a new one, replace it, and it's a perfect match for them. It would be amazing. It'd be game changing. Right, right. And the kidney project is actually a bioartificial. It's not, uh, it's also a mechanical device that they implant right. into your body. So it's it's both. It's got your own cells in it and it's mm -hmm. got a pump. And it is a bit science fiction-y. Yes. So the next one is medical alert systems for seniors. And why do you think I put that there? It reminds me of that commercial from the 80s. I've, <laughs> I've fallen and I can't get up, right? I mean, yeah, not, exactly. not, to, not to put too fine a point. This can be very serious. I mean, we know, you know, this uh, seniors falls and, and lack of mobility is huge uh, risk for mor morbidity and mortality um, uh, across the world, especially here in the United States, where we don't necessarily have as many folks living in multi-generation families as they do in some other parts of the world. And so I think having a kind of an early warning system or a way to help get that help when they need it urgently, I think could be, you know, critical. Yeah, but there's been some improvements also with um, their, 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 where you don't actually have to wear this huge like necklace kind of thing. Right, yes. Yeah, <laughs> They've gotten a lot better this year and I think it's more acceptable for people to use them. I haven't tried convincing my mom yet to, to use one, but she has in fact fallen and broken her hip. And Oh no. And I'm impressed to see how they're embracing the new technologies to improve that level of care as well. Yeah, so, agreed. And they're quite affordable. Right. That's always the key, right? Yeah, yeah. So artificial touch technology and prosthetic limbs. This is some new stuff, and it's really exciting to see. They've got feet now, right? So you can actually have artificial feet, and you can feel things. Um, it's it's crazy. It's not nuanced. It's still very clumsy and and pretty and that was what I want raw, but hey, we're getting somewhere where you can have prosthetic limbs that can touch and feel things. That's amazing. That That is super sci-fi. Well, and I wonder how this might impact folks who have phantom limb syndrome, yeah, you know, after, after an amputation and they still feel like they can feel it. Will this help or change that at all? Again, I think this is probably maybe, maybe like this is like 2026, not 2024, but maybe, you know, sometime soon. 
well, a few individuals. So it's very, very small yeah. scale. So it's really not going to impact the, the the landscape of medicine whatsoever. But dang, it's interesting. Yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating. Completely agree. Uh, Absolutely. So this is a little bit more uh, likely to start gaining impact over the next year. And it's, again, a little bit affecting only a few people. I think just 200,000 newborns have undergone it now. But genome screening for newborns. What's, what's your take on that as a family doctor? I mean, this this raises all kinds of ethical questions in right. my mind, um, which I think is probably the biggest thing. I know we we do some, you know, you know, genetic testing, you know, in utero, uh, even before the baby's born. Now, is this specifically after they're born or is yeah, it? Yeah, this is I'm, newborn. At, so at, at at birth, okay. At birth or or within, I think, three days of birth when they yeah. when they do the standard heal uh, blood test, you know, to see for the basic metabolic diseases or whatever they did at that point, they did uh, full nature, full genome screening. It's a quarter of a million babies at this point. And the idea is to build it up so that we've got enough to know yeah, about what's yeah. going to, you know, primary yeah, prevention. It, primary prevention. There you go. Uh, I like that. <laughs> but also at the, at the same time, you know, do we know, is it, is it really truly predictive or is it just a put put them at higher risk of certain diseases. And so, you know, you have the information, but what do you do with it? Right. That's always the next question. Exactly. Um, and and how do we do we does this potentially have implications for for life insurance or or career planning or you name it, right? And so, you know, based on how accurate this sort of genome sequencing can can give us information about the health of this individual or the population. So I, I think this is fascinating. I, I think this is something we're gonna have to continue to grapple with as we this becomes more and more mainstream. We get more and more data. But then again, like the like like the question for any test, how does it change the treatment plan? And that's right. that's something that I'm always thinking about as a primary care doctor is we can order all these tests, but but what does it mean to that individual patient and what does it change? Absolutely. So this though the project I'm referring to is called the Baby Seek Project. And it's it's a Harvard Medical School based project. And what they've done is they'll do the sequencing, but they'll filter it so that either the doctors, I don't even know if it's the doctors, the parents have access to only the actionable items. Right. So, for example, if the baby in question is a female with a BRCA mutation, sure. then there might be some you know screening protocols that will be kicked in automatically on their 25th birthday or whatever. Mm-hmm. So those those are the things that are, would be actionable and interesting to to consider how you approach that. But for the things that aren't what there's nothing you can do about uh, Huntington's, for example, I don't think right. that that would be open. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so at this point, it's more of a data collection, it sounds like, and they're just sort of collecting the data to see where, where, how it pans There's out. There's several hundred diseases where they can do this, like cystic fibrosis, things like that, where you can know it's useful to know ahead of time. Oh, absolutely. But there's probably a couple, a couple hundred conditions, which, which would be screened and be told to the parents. But there's also a number, probably right. a much larger number, which would not be told. And that, right. those are things like risks, like your child may or may not have an increased risk of heart disease, you know, because how hard is that evidence? It's kind of hard to right. tell. Interesting. Yeah, this, this is this is fascinating, and it will be interesting to see where this goes. It would be absolutely. So that was our list, Alex. All right, that felt shorter than last year. Maybe I pontificated more. I apologize. I think that by and large, we're seeing a lot of things becoming more affordable and coordinated, mm-hmm. and those are good things. 
And I think we've left out the bad things, which is there's also a lot, a lot of mess still to clean up from previous policies. And who knows what the year is going to really bring. And there's an election year this year. So things might look different next year when we do this. So who knows? Well, I, I really enjoy joining you and I appreciate the opportunity to sort of reflect back and look forwards and then we'll hopefully get to do this next year and we can see how how close we were. But again, I'm going to say it, stick it again. Primary prevention is going to be the the continued overall theme, which I think a lot of these probably fit in that category, quite frankly. So. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And it's exciting to see. I'm, I'm really excited about 2024. There's going to be a lot of great stuff coming out, but Every year I get excited. It's like Christmas a bit. You see so many <laughs> of these fantastic, you know, one disease after another. We're gaining insights. We may not have it all figured out, but we're definitely making incremental improvements. And, and it's just a fantastic year to be practicing medicine, I think. so. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that's one of the things I love best. That Well, it's one of the things I think is most challenging and also most rewarding about medicine, especially in a field like mine in primary care. There's just so much evolution and the pace of change uh, in terms of how we're practicing, you know, changes, you know, daily, if not weekly in some respects. And that's, that's really exciting and fun, but also challenging at the same time. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more from you over the year and we'll definitely uh, be in touch. So thanks so much for joining me. No, thanks. Thanks to you. And thanks for all of you out there listening. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you listen in next week too. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 